Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey everybody, welcome back to Spear Factor. Today I'm talking with Daniel Mann, YouTube spearfishing celebrity in the flesh. Uh, Well, not really in the flesh, more like in the voice, but uh, we have a great conversation covering everything from diving in Norway, giant halibut, and uh, doing a YouTube channel. So I hope you enjoy and check it out. And as always, we got to give a big shout out to our sponsors, uh, Camara Spearfishing. Uh, the best thing about Camara Spearfishing is, wow, the uh, tip actually works and it uh, replaces the high expensive uh, slip tips. It allows you to hunt around rocks without any issues. Uh, I personally use it and I wouldn't recommend it if I didn't personally use it and believe in it. So check out the side slips at CamaraSpearfishing.com. And uh, the good news is if you get there and you decide you want to purchase, which you should, first of all, uh, but if you put in the Spear Factor promo code, that's promo code is Spear Factor, you'll get an additional 5% off. And um, that 5%, to be honest, comes back to me, which helps me do this whole thing and makes my wife happy. So I appreciate that very much uh, if you do decide to purchase. Also, our other sponsors, um, a new sponsor as well this week is Hot Rod Spear Guns. Uh, check it out, Paul Rodriguez. Uh, his Instagram, Hot Rod Spear Guns. Uh, I got a chance to meet Paul and go dive with him. And I've used his products to hunt dogs down in uh, Micronesia. And again, I believe in it. It's a, a good gun, really good gun uh, at a really good price. So check it out. And as always, we're affiliated with the One Drop Spearfishing, the boys down in Guam doing it right. Uh, spearfishing to feed the families and friends. And just love being in the ocean. All right, now that we got that done, let's get started with this episode. Yeah, so basically, um, uh, you've obviously, you know, spear fisherman. uh, But more importantly, like I've 
seen you everywhere as far as on the YouTube stuff. Yeah. Was that something that you kind of had in mind was like, I'm going to really go at this YouTube thing or I'm just going to like, what kind of started all that? I, I never had a plan to get onto YouTube ever. Uh, I basically, I, I moved to the UK at the end of 2015 from Australia. So obviously quite a massive change in, in diving conditions and opportunities. And I moved at a horrible time. I moved at December, which is the, the start of winter in the UK, which is really bad. And I was doing a little bit of filming in Australia beforehand, just with GoPros and stuff for a magazine called Spearfishing Down Under magazine. And we were putting a DVD together, a mate of mine, Tim McDonald. We were putting a DVD on a cover of a magazine every two or three months or something like that. And, you know, we were just putting together death montages, etc., where it's shoot a fish with some music for eight to 10 minutes. And then they, the owner of that magazine tried to merge it to an online platform kind of like a netflix but i think it was just the wrong time it never really took off we were trying to do better sort of episodes online and um it just sort of fell apart really and i was and i'd filmed some really nice stuff in tonga at the end of 2015 because i went there for a 10-day charter and i basically got to the winter in the uk i didn't have a job for a couple months and i was just sort of like you know waiting for bank accounts to get rolling because you know you can't get a flat until you've got some way to pay the rent and you can't uh, pay the rent unless you've got a bank account to pay the rent and then you can't get a job unless you've you know all that sort of crap so I was just I, was just, I had nothing to do so I thought well I'm just going to edit my spearfishing footage and I was you know trying to do something with it and I thought oh, it sucks I was just you know looking at all this footage that I've got that's really cool and then one day I thought oh I might as well you know give YouTube a go stick it up on YouTube I, I felt really bad for filming all this really great stuff well I thought it was great um and and not actually sharing it and I thought well stuff it I, I might as well do something with it so basically at the start of 2016 I thought yeah well, I might give it a go and so I just started putting up a few old clips that I'd edited um for this magazine you know five years prior sort of thing and a few people watched them and stuff and then um I was really bored with my electrical job and thought, well, um, I know how to use a camera a little bit. So I started looking for video jobs. And so I wasn't quite qualified enough to um, get straight into that field. So I do what most people do these days, uh, try and self-educate. And so I sort of spent more and more time on YouTube looking at sort of people doing photography and videography type tutorials. And then one thing led to another. I was like, well, Nobody's doing any sort of spearfishing um, presented in a way that's kind of more personable than just here's some dead fish. Well, very, very few people were doing it or, or doing it very well. So I thought, well, this is a great opportunity for one, me to upskill myself, uh, two, use my footage that I've got, and three, just do something other than sit around in a pub in, in London for, for the winter when I didn't have a job or wasn't doing anything else. So... Um, yeah, I kind of just used it as a little avenue to change career paths. Well, uh, what uh, what kind of st uh, triggered you moving to uh, London? Uh, well, my wife and I, um, my wife and I both, we'd been married three, three, actually I think it was only two, I think it was only two years, we were married two years in Brisbane and um my electrical job had been made redundant because the company was going downhill. I had a massive payout. So I had a large pile of cash and we thought, let's apply for our British passports because both our mothers were born in, in England. 
and uh, my wife's sister was already had already been over here for a couple of years and we thought oh let's give it a go we'll you know go travel see something applied for our passports two and a half weeks later british citizens and just thought yeah let's give it a go uh so yeah it was either financial stability kids white picket fence or uh, have a bit of fun so here we are on the have a bit of fun end of of that that story yeah there's always time you know i mean i do the uh white i'm trying to do the white picket fence thing now but like yeah. uh yeah i had a i had a pretty good run there my wife and i like yeah um, double income no kids sort of thing Right. Well, I look back and I was like, man, if I only knew, like I was just going for, I probably would have been, I mean, I got a lot of really good memories, but, uh, man, I don't know what I do with all that money. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I look back at now, I'm like, um, I'm not, I'm not really the most financially uh, stable person, but at the end of the day, I could get hit by a bus tomorrow. So I know you got to live your life, I guess. So, um, yeah, four, four years later, um, the desire to maybe have a white picket fence in the future is creeping up a little bit now. Um, so four years in, um, in Sin City is, uh, gets to you eventually. But, yeah, so I thought while I was here, I might as well make use of my time, try and upskill myself, and I just started making videos of, of my old previous footage. And, yeah, that's sort of how I started kicking on with the YouTube thing, really. When you were doing your uh, videos, were you thinking about like um, search engine optimization? So like when people make these <clears> things, like they're like trying to make a business and they're going for it. Yeah, and sure. Did you do any of that too? Or were you just um, very mechanically trying to start, just put your stuff down? I, I think when I when I started, like like most people, you have no idea and you just try and basically just make, make content that people like. I remember... I've got like screenshots on my phone uh, when I was looking at some videos I posted up and I was like, yeah, I hit a thousand views in, in one week sort of thing. Uh, it was, it was quite, um, quite different back then. And I think getting the first sort of thousand subscribers was the most difficult journey um, out of my YouTube career so far. I think it took, I think it took me probably like nearly a year to get a thousand subscribers. I didn't really tailor them for, trying to get views, you know, something that would, I just wanted to make stuff that I was doing. So I think my, one of my first videos, uh, I did abroad. I went to, I went down to Brighton. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to London, but it's like the closest beach to London, south of London on a train by about two hours. I went there and I shot a few mullet and some, I saw some bass. I shot a flat, little flatfish about, you know, a foot long sort of thing. And I was absolutely stoked because i'd got my gear posted over from my dad and i jumped in the water new country coldest water i'd ever dived and here i was shooting mullet something you'd never touch in australia and i just sort of captured that essence on on my video i think and i had a lot of people say like really great amazing spearfishers from around the world i think one one comment that stuck in my head uh from Yerasimos Cavadias he's a, a Greek guy I don't know how to pronounce his last name correctly but he, he was I think he was runner-up or third at world champion he was third at world championships that I went to in Greece and he said you know this is the most sort of real spearfishing video ever because it just shows that anyone can go out and have a go and have fun and it's not always about you know diving 40 50 meters like these guys are always doing it's just I don't know and I, I got quite encouraged to go hey well you know, I might not might not live in a place that's really exciting for spearfishing as as far as people are concerned, the the UK. But if if people like watching something that's real, 
uh, I think I'll um, I'll try and just capture what's real. And I, I think from when I started out, I never wanted to be like, oh, look at me, I shot a huge fish. I, my, my most successful videos have been about failures, honestly. Um, the first video I, I uh, a video I, that sort of kickstarted my whole sort of channel really was I went to Norway and went looking for halibut for a week. And I, I organized the majority of the trip with another friend here and, you know, sort of got people over from Australia. They just had to get off the plane and rock up. You know, I did all the emailing, the flights, say, get here this time. Did all the groundwork, didn't get a fish. And I think people really resonated with that fact because everybody's gone on a trip where you don't get the fish that you're after and you see your buddies get their fish and you're like, oh man, that's humbling. So I think, I think people really just like the fact that you know, I didn't didn't win as such. You know, like the, you know, nobody always likes to see someone that always succeeds because it's 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 not really real. So that's kind of maybe maybe why people like my videos, I guess, because they're. I, I feel I'm not trying to hide anything. If I if I if I stuff things up, I made a whole video about how I stuffed a competition up, and people were like, oh, that's cool, because I make the same mistakes. Um, and if people can learn from it, that's really cool. So. Yeah. Well, that was the one thing I and I and I agree a hundred percent with what you're saying is that your, you know, channel or when you're when you're on the video, it's like very very genuine. Like you can tell you're yourself, and it it seems like you're having a good time doing it. But the funniest thing is uh, is exactly what you're talking about. Like when you shot, I think the halibut, and your buddy let go of the line or let go of the uh, the gun. Oh, I gave him my spare gun, yeah. So he he basically put a spear into it. He was using a pea shooter from Finland because uh, although they're quite close countries, Finland's doesn't really have any coastal. Well, it's got the Baltic Sea, but most of their diving's done in lakes, and they're shooting 500 gram redfin perch, etc., and maybe the odd zander, maybe three kilos, etc. So they're not they're not after big fish. They're not geared up for it. So he's basically shot an elephant with a pea shooter, uh, for lack of a better term. And his spear wasn't in, so I gave him my gun and yeah, he shot the fish with my gun, which had a reel on it. And then he pulled his first spear out and forgot to hold onto the real gun and it swam off with my gun still in its head. Um, yeah, it was a heavy day. Yeah, and then the other thing, because um, I've done trips too with my friends and it's like everybody assumes because you like the trip leader or you put it together yeah. that like obviously you're going to get the biggest fish, you know. And like, it doesn't always happen at all. Right. I went down and I remember my. I look up and my friend yells. He's on the boat and he's got this monster like kingfish or yellowtail. Uh, and I'm like, wow, you know, well done. And then right after that, I shoot uh, my personal best yellow uh, yellowtail kingfish at that time. And it ripped out and I lost it and I get on the boat and everybody's got these massive like fish. And I'm just like, I was actually applauding just like. Well, it's not all about you sometimes, Brett, you know, like yeah. it was just really cool to actually see your friends like stoked and then the reality of the situation, right? Like exactly what you're talking yeah. about. You do everything. It doesn't mean you're going to get a fish. Yeah. I think that's one of the beautiful things about spearfishing is as much as line fishermen like to say that it's cheating and you're always going to get a fish. It's, it's, it's just, it's not all the, always the way the cookie crumbles <laughs> when it comes to, to spearfishing. So yeah, I think a lot of people resonated with that and thought, you know, that's like just a lot of people wouldn't put a video out. Well, I feel may not put a video out if you don't get anything. And um, yeah, I, I guess that was 
that that video was probably the one that started uh, my YouTube career. And then I followed it up shortly with a, a video from Tonga where basically we spent a whole day getting fish eaten by sharks or breaking gear, just, just the amateur hour all over. And yeah, that was... That, yeah, I just did everything wrong. I borrowed a spear gun off a friend. I added some wings to it. I thought, yeah, it's fine. I'm a good shot. And just first day, I missed probably maybe 25 kilo wahoo or something. It was extremely clear water as well. So, you know, I can't just blame the gun. But once you sort of got used to shooting the gun, I could I could hit fish with it. I shot a job fish with it later in, later in the week. But yeah, just all that sort of stuff that I think people really say, yeah, that's actually, actually what happens out there. And yeah. Um, I got lucky, actually. Yeah, ended up getting a dog tooth about 30 kilos at the end of the day. But, um, yeah, not not an easy path to success anyway. That's great. Um, so you moved to England. You went from Australia to England now. And I love yeah. the fact that uh, you know, I always have the mindset, no matter where I go, I'm always going to have a good time. I'm going to find a way to yeah. surf, to dive. It's all kind of a state of mind. And if there's mm -hmm. a body of water there's potential there, you know, Yeah, hundred uh, percent for anything like, yeah. Uh, but I understand you had, uh, sinus issues before and you had surgery on that, right? Twice. Twice. What yeah. was can you kind of, cause I know a lot, uh, a good friend of mine is having issues right now. He's getting ready to have a surgery, but what was your issue? Um, um, I basically got to the point where, I would I would dive and I would I don't know what sort of equalizing technique I use some some days I can hands freeze some days I pinch my nose but you know just the gen generic sort of pinch and blow I it wouldn't sort of clear above my eyebrows which is quite painful and I think the first operation I had the doctor didn't really quite understand my issue I think I don't know I was maybe like 19 years old or something like that and I I'd come out of or maybe 21 I think or 20 years old when I first got that operation I would come back from a dive trip sometimes and I'd get up in the boat and I'd take my mask off and I was like, oh, my mask has got like blood around the lip of it and the, the ring because I would, it'd, you know, you'd blow and you could just feel uh, blood vessels bursting. And then I went to, I got recommended an, a, an ENT, the, an ear, nose, throat specialist that actually does stuff with diving and he took a CT scan of my face and basically saw that on my left side of my sinuses, it was quite constricted up above sort of the bridge of your nose to your eyebrow area there, the the bone structure there. It's very fine, delicate bones up there. That was kind of a little bit squished. And I suffered a lot from uh, sinusitis and sort of allergies and that sort of stuff. And I still get them here. But um, yeah, so he basically bored those out um, above, above my uh, septum to the top. And I remember the second operation... Uh, I had packs up there and then I got them removed about a week after because I was supposed you're supposed to do these sinus flushes with a bottle. I don't know if you've probably done those sort of things before. And I'm like, yeah, the, the water, the water's just not going through, man. And he's like, let me have a look up there. And there was supposed to be some dissolvable packing up there and stuff because they cauterize all your skin up there. So you've got you know little bits of bone and flesh and all that. And I remember he got some forceps up there and I <clears throat> nearly passed out basically pulled these things out about two inches long that were just congealed blood bone and and that sort of stuff and i was like i just i clearly remember that I, oh i can breathe again and um i could i could taste i could taste like oh everything i could smell my sense of smells amazing now because i hadn't been able to smell for a week sort of thing and um yeah and then he said just stare the water for 
couple of weeks. I remember the first time I went diving, I was like, okay, here goes nothing. And my nose was still a bit tender, but I went diving and uh, it was an amazing feeling that I just touched my nose blue and it was just, you know, sinus is clear, not, not, not a squeak, not a sound, just, just nothing. Um, and it was like that for maybe three years. Um, and then I got, I don't know what happened. I think I got a bad sort of sinus infection and then I haven't been amazing since like, uh, I still have some days where I can hands-free equalize to a hundred foot. And then other days I have to really press hard, but there's, there hasn't been a day in the water where I've had to get out of the water because I couldn't dive anymore. So, you know, there's still a bit squeaky some days. And obviously if you, I was working a lot on construction sites as an electrician and in the UK particularly, you do a lot of chasing into concrete walls and brick walls and stuff like that because all the homes are brick in that. And so that really wrecks your sinuses, all, all those building yeah, dust. Yeah, the concrete dust is... Um, uh, alkaline, alkali, alkaline. Yeah, it attacks your vessels and that just irritates you and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, the operation I had was called septoplasty and fess. So, yeah, I think, yeah, that definitely changed it for me. So, I can I can generally go on a dive trip and, and short of having a full blown cold, I'm always going to be able to dive. So, I never really had too many problems with my ears though. If I ever had problems with my ears, like not being able to clear an ear. It was always just dehydration uh, for me. I've, I've had that uh, one time I was diving a, a state titles off the Southern Barrier Reef once and I remember I was swimming really hard and it, the water was quite warm. When I say warm, it was 26 degrees, so quite warm. And I remember diving, 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 went to dive on a coral trout. And I was like, oh, both my ears are locked up. This is weird. I've been totally fine all day. And then I was like, oh, three hours in, been swimming really hard, haven't drunk any water. So then I got a Gatorade out, drank that in two seconds flat, swam around for 15 minutes, fine for the rest of the day. So um, yeah, I think dehydration is a really big cause of bad sinus. I loved on the last video, by the way, it reminds me of your last video where uh, you had your buddy call in on the, the yellowtail when you did the tips for the yellowtail. Oh yes. Yeah. Young Harry. Yeah. Yeah. That was a good little, that was a good little, uh, a little addition to the video too. That was good stuff. To, to an otherwise um, quite uh, un boring sort of, oh, I, didn't re I didn't really like making that video, but I had a lot of people saying they wanted something about kingfish. And I was like, oh, well, for where I'm from, we don't really shoot them too much. Uh, so I didn't actually have a lot of footage, but I thought, well, I know I've helped someone, that's that's kind of good. Um, so I, I, I guess your question, do I, do I tailor footage for uh, videos for people? Somewhat, I... I I make the stuff that I want to make. I wouldn't make a video unless I want to do it myself. And personally, I get a lot of joy. Joy, joy. I just, I just get a lot of joy and satisfaction when I get, I get a message from someone that says, "Hey, I watched this video. One of your tips in there really helped me, and I landed this fish. I'm so happy." I was like, you know, that's yeah, a really cool feeling. You know, you don't, you get ten thousand people watching a video. You might get one message every month or every six months about that sort of stuff. But you're like, you know, that's yeah, I, I want to make, um, I wouldn't say like a difference in a way that I'm doing something humanitarian or, or anything like that, you know, but like, it, it's nice to give something back to a, a community and, and help people because I'm sure, I'm not sure what it's like in, in the States, but I imagine you get some of those old older sort of divers that are phenomenal, but they don't want to help anyone. And you know, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, you know, you get, you get that sort of typical, 
old grumpy diver and and that's fine you know each to their own you, you, no one's obliged to help anyone but i just feel that um it's something i can do i enjoy um helping people out and i think globally um you know spearfishers have a stronger voice it's it's probably not a bad thing or the other thing is safety as well like people just watching a spearfishing video or seeing how to do th some things in in the right way there was um a uh, really, really sad case in the UK. I think it was two or three summers ago. Um, some guys in the club that I was with had to go look look for a, a, a missing spearfisher in a in a very new beginner sort of spot. Maybe I don't know, maybe like less than sort of eight meters deep. So you know, like twenty five foot. Like not not deep by any stretch of the imagination. But um, they found this man with his spear gun attached to his wrist with a a lanyard attached to the gun with no nothing else and the, the gun was the spear was stuck on the bottom in a piece of kelp or a rock or something he'd fired and then couldn't get to the surface and get it off his wrist which is you know in, in incredibly tragic story but um the the parents basically said oh well it, everyone dives like that that's that's how it's done and i just when, when i heard that i was like oh man if you know you need to sort of I think for me, for someone that's been diving for a while and survived 15 years, uh, because it is quite dangerous, I, for me, I felt like a bit of an obligation to try and give some um, educational tips on, on how to dive safe or how things are done. This is how you set up your stuff. You don't attach anything to, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so not that I'm saying I'm a hero in teaching safety and, and that's not sort of what I want to do is like, you know, doing courses and that sort of things. But I think if people see things done right, um, if they're going to emulate anything, they may as well emulate something that's um, not as dangerous as something they just hear off the street. So, Yeah, it's actually interesting. That's a good uh, kind of a topic. I was talking to um, Nick from Spear Channel this mm -hmm. um, Yeah, this uh, actually yesterday about it, I think this week about it, where um, too many times I feel like with us, I say with us, but our community um, – you know, you see guys, young guys, and they post things, and they may be, and Nick was telling me this, like, it may be an out-of-season fish or something, and people just, like, we in the States will say, like, kook or whatever, and, like, yeah, sure. and, and just bash on these kids, and my thing is, like, I remember when I was learning, and I didn't have... I had a friend who was older who mentored me on a couple of things, but for the most part, it was all trial and error. For sure, and yeah. Wouldn't it be great? Like, like you're saying though, too. Um, you know, it is a safety thing a lot of times, and like I wish, um, I would. What a great opportunity uh, to be in this position where I have knowledge, um, you know, that I've learned. And how great is it to share it with someone and then they just seem to have a better time. They're safe yeah, and sure. they, they appreciate, um, it's nice. I just feel like it's so much better to give than, you know, and then it just seems like it's karma or whatever you want to call it. Um, but it's awesome to do, to be in a position to, to help people like that. I, 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 de I definitely like, um, helping people. Uh, that's kind of like one of my personalities is I, I tend to, Help, I just like, you know, I help friends out. If, if someone called me up, you know, I'd go out uh, and, and, you know, help them out if I could or anything like that. And uh, I think it's uh, in a position where I am that I've got, you know, quite a large audience uh, that I'm, that I'm delivering to. I think it's almost, you know, I'd be, I'd be silly not to sort of 
help people out. And I've also had some people like criticize helping helping you divers out. I'll let them figure it out themselves. You know, it took me ten years to learn that. I'm like, yeah, well, you know, back in the day, they also used to take things with a horse and cart, but just because that's what your forefathers did doesn't mean that that's necessarily the best way to do things anymore. Um, and I know that's probably, you know, a millennial or whatever deal for people to say that's, oh, I want it now, now, now. But um, yeah, like if you can, yeah, I, from my experience as well is people that get quite protective about, uh, you know, oh, I don't I don't want to train somebody because they're going to shoot all my fish. I can tell you I've I've been on so many dive trips where you've got someone that has been diving a few years can not competently dive but their that ability to hunt i guess is something that you can't really teach in a video too easy you have to go out and there's some things you you can't do unless you do it like riding a bike you can tell someone yeah balance on a bicycle if you stick someone on a bicycle that's never been on a bicycle they're not riding at the first day you know you, you, it's just some things you have to do and i've been to many dive places i remember it this one time uh, we were diving for a fish called a barramundi a bit of a ledge that sort of slopes down a lot of mud on it and i would go down to about 10 meters you know 30 feet or something like that and i would sit there and there'd just be schools of barramundi going past i'm like oh man why isn't this guy why isn't this guy shooting one and so i shot one and he's like oh where'd you get that i said man i just sat on the bottom big school so he dives in the exact same spot no i didn't see anything i was like okay cool um, I had another dive, exact same spot. A couple of minutes later, big school coming past. I'm like, oh, geez, is this guy going to get one? Anyway, I said, oh, mate, let's dive together in the same spot. You follow me down and make sure you're on the bottom. Follows me down and I'm sitting there. I'm like, oh, where's, where's this guy gone? And I was like, all right, or maybe about 10 foot visibility, three meters and really short guns looking for these. I'm like, there's a big school of barramundi all over me. Where is this guy? Like all swimming in front of me. And then I see him just swim about, I was like, what's that above me? And he just he's just cruising two, three meters off the bottom above me, just swimming in the middle of nowhere. I'm just like, I got to the surface, like, mate, like, were you on the bottom? Yeah, 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 I was right on the bottom. I'm like, I saw you, mate, you swam over me. Like, I don't know, it's just, you know, there's there's just fish everywhere and, and, and sometimes you can lead a horse to water, but they're not always gonna gonna get the stuff. Uh, so I think I think when people get upset about teaching people how to shoot fish or spearfishing techniques and that sort of stuff. There's a lot of practical application that's not going to come from a video. You can point someone in the right direction, but sometimes they just got to go out and do it themselves. And it's, it's uh, the other classic example is, is a competition, a swim off competition that we, that you do anywhere. Everyone's got the same, same ocean, the same set of legs, and they're all starting in the same spot. Someone's always going to have more fish than someone else. And that's generally through experience, not just, latest gear or someone or they watched a video on something so yeah i think um i think i think it's it's good to teach people how to do things but there's gets to a certain point where you can't teach anymore they have to go out and do it themselves so yeah i'm not i'm not too worried about people shooting all my fish that i don't actually own it's just an ocean that i swim in so yeah that's my take on it no, I, I agree. I would say uh, I'm not insecure about my spearfishing or whatever you want to call it. Um, I don't really care. A lot of it is, too, is just time in the water. I mean, like yeah. you said, I know that from watching my son, trying to teach my son how to dive and yeah, telling sure. him, okay, we're here. There's bait. 
Just do yeah. a real slow dive, and then it's just whoosh, splash, 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 splash. Splash you around like a maniac. He shoots down, comes up, like breathing all heavy. I didn't see anything. And I'm like, hold on. Really? Really? Yeah. <laughs> so I dive down, and I shoot this really nice bass, and I come up, and he's like, I don't get it. I'm like, look, <laughs> there's your heart rate is through the roof, everything about yeah. you. It's like you just kind of have to go, uh, let it go and just enjoy everything and – what when sort I of started, um, yeah, then all of a sudden I started seeing all these fish, you know. What what sort of bass are, are you talking about when you say bass? Is that a uh, a striped bass? Is that a white sea bass? Uh, for this, this was uh, just my son's. It was just a striped bass, like a calico bass we have in the kelp here. Is is that different to those big stripers they get off New Jersey and New York and that sort of stuff? Yeah, so... That's a different, that's a, that's a different fish. Right. That's the East Coast. They get different. Um, I guess we've actually had uh, a few of them here. I know somebody that shot one uh, pretty close by, but they're really rare. Okay. Most of our bass is white sea bass, which is kind of like your mulloway. Yeah, it's 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 more like a, a pterygolin, actually, because it's got a concave tail. The tail goes in, the mulloway goes out like a paddle, um, and, and you've got much smaller scales on a, on a, on a white sea bass just from... But it's a big croaker anyway. That's the same same sort of thing, but they get massive. Um, yeah. Do they have Do they have an orange mouth on the inside? Uh, sea bass, not 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 so white sea bass. Okay, because the, the little tragedy we call them in in Australia or Terrigalin, they have a really orange mouth. That's how you tell them apart from a, a mulloway when they're really small. If you have no other way of identifying them, so yeah, I'm not familiar with that. Oh. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know if, how the Mulloway are. Are they like sea ba uh, white sea bass where they're so extremely skittish where if you clear your ears, they can get spooked out of depth sometimes? Um, not, not, uh, some days, like any fish, you get smart ones and dumb ones. When they're in a big school, they tend to be a bit easier to approach. Um, I've got some, I've got some quite cool footage of them vortexing up. I'm not sure if the, the white sea bass do that, but sort of maybe just a ball of, of mulloway sort of a hundred fish sort of thing. Uh, just sitting, doing a spiral, shoot one, swim to the surface. Thanks for coming. Yeah. yeah we usually, uh, we, like we pretty much, uh, hunt them in the kelp. Yeah. I've seen a few videos of that. It looks cool. Yeah, it's in the kelp, and it's during like uh, you know spring times when they start to spawn, so you see them. But what happens during that same time? It's really bad viz usually. Okay. Um, it's real cold, and right. they like to hang out right about the thermocline. When you say cold, how cold's cold? Well, for us, it's uh, you know in the high fifties for us. So I guess I don't. What what's that, what's that in real money? 16 i mean so we need to get on board with the rest of the world i'll tell you that much i think it's about what is it 15 c maybe i don't know yeah it's that's not that's not too tropical yeah well it's like yeah it's what's 17 c i think that's like 68 so uh, yeah okay yeah so it'd be like probably a, a you know 14 c maybe i don't know yeah, that's that. That's 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 not the warmest. Yeah, that's normally what the UK is for a fair bit of the year, actually. Yeah, it's probably like that. Very similar, I'm sure. Um, except there's not massive white sea bass swimming around in our waters. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is too is uh, um, the sketchy thing is you know with the sea bass, dun, you can see a coral. Dun, dun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's no visibility, you know. Yeah. Do the do the whites go into into the kelp though? Is that something? 
It's funny for the longest time, I know a bunch of my friends and I, we, you know, that was like the false sense of security in the kelp. Yeah. So they showed a, you know, video of a big white, just plowing through the kelp. Didn't care. Um, just loved it. it. Yeah. But they're there. I mean, um, you know, it's, uh, it's not bad when there's good visit. None of that stuff really bothers me. Like you were talking about, uh, cause I've dove a lot in the tropics too. And, um, you know, if you can, I've seen a big massive tiger shark come on. If you can see them, it's not a big deal. But it's I still don't like big tigers that much because <laughs> they're unpredictable and, and yeah. uh, they're just massive. But um, with no viz, I mean, if that shark's coming, you know, it sees a yeah. silhouette and it's coming. There's not much you can do about it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, where That's usually, um, if they see you, they don't really that interested, and in that you have a good sporting chance, so to speak, of like them just going okay and leaving. Yeah. So, I know That's Australia one. has their fair share of sharks. Yeah, there's a fair few sharks there. I, d I didn't really miss them the last time I was back. I was like, oh, damn it, sharks again, because it's quite, uh, in Europe anyway, there's not a high chance of running into a shark. Um, although they say the UK doesn't have any whites, but the water's the perfect temperature. There's a large population of seals everywhere. Um, so, I can't, I can't see why they wouldn't be there, apart from they might not have a reason to migrate to that area to sort of stay there yeah not to get off topic but it's pretty wild too because of everything they've kind of learned about them and the last few years you know were these these hot spots for great whites that nobody even knew about till they started tracking them yeah and uh you know back in the 50s and 60s here everybody would go dive like terry moss for those big tuna down in guadalupe island yeah that's where they get the whoppers there isn't it yeah, and so then all the sharks are there, and it was just like, you know, now they realize it's seasonal, which is kind of interesting, too. It's like very seasonal. So if you can time it right, you might you got a good shot, you know, of like getting on some mm. solid fish without the sharks, but yeah. You know. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, I do, I do like the comfort of sort of going out and not running into sharks, although a couple of guys here have run into a Port Beagle shark, which... I, th I think they're very similar to an Alaskan salmon shark. They kind of look like a comical great white with an unusually large eye. Yeah, like I don't, I don't think they feed on mammals typically, but yeah, some guys have seen them off. There's one particular spot on the south coast of England that sort of sticks out sort of a fair way and quite deep water around it where, where you dive sort of these ledges and they can go down to about 25, 30 meters and then it falls off to about 50 and people catch them on rotten rotten line there as well a little bit but yeah, that's probably the only thing you've got to worry about a little bit port beagles but at the end of the day yeah it's probably probably not the worst shark to run into yeah i mean i always look at it like if everybody in the water because i surf a lot too and like uh how many shark attacks are there um if you know when I was growing up diving, I'd always be scared. I'd always watch Shark Week, and it'd always Ugh. be in my mind, you know. And then I just told myself, like, number one, I'm not watching Shark Week anymore because I just don't want <laughs> that in my mind. Yeah, for sure. And number two, look, you're either gonna get in the water and enjoy it, or and let go and just whatever, or stop diving. Well, I'm not gonna yeah. stop diving, so I don't care anymore. You know, yeah, that's kind of my it. attitude towards it. So, yeah, that um. Yeah, that is one thing I have thoroughly enjoyed about Europe is the, is the lack of predatory animals in the water. Yeah. Pursuing wild game in wild places.
Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Well, it's funny watching that Tonga video that you had uh, with the with the dog dude, and that was that that was like the story of um, my friends and I's like whole trips down in, uh, in Guam. We go to these spots, okay. and you know they would just get lit. And you see these, you know, dog tooth are just the cool. They're my favorite because it's the most humbling experience. Oh yeah, they will they will sort you out very quickly. Um, yeah, yeah they, everything's got to be on point, and I love it yeah. about that, those animals. But um, man, did you notice w- when? So I've noticed this when we would go out, we would shoot a uh, rather I, I say a large dog, but you know, depending on your scale. But like, let's say twenty five kilograms or yeah, decent decent fish. Yeah, yeah decent fish. Uh, a lot of the sharks would leave it alone and run away from it, like and not bother it. When we'd shoot a smaller grade dog tooth, the sharks would just immediately annihilate it. You know, um, um, have you seen that at all when you were in Tonga, or they just didn't? We did. Um, smaller ones did attract a little bit more attention, but we tried not to shoot those after the first two days. But what we did definitely notice is fish shot in the head that weren't stoned got eaten a lot easier because we had this theory that they couldn't sort of snarl and swipe their head around as much. Whereas we started shooting them in the tail like you'd shoot a Spanish mackerel because I, I just sort of heard from a few people, quite experienced guys, they said, oh yeah, shoot them, shoot them down the back, in the back third. I was like, are you serious? And I'm like, it's very tempting when you see that massive dog tooth head, you're just like, I'm going to shoot you right in the face. And, um, but yeah, the one I, I purposely shot the one that I did as far back as I was comfortable with aiming with that big gun and it came to the surface five minutes. It, it was done. I had another mate of mine uh, at the Coral Sea. I think he shot one maybe 75 kilos or something, 150 pound, 160 pound. Shot, shot it right in the tail. It was on the, on the surface in, in a couple of minutes. Just you take out that... Um, take out the the propeller and they can't really swim too much so yeah it's a good la- i've heard that from uh, mark healy too with uh, uh just watching one of his videos he was talking about that with wahoo tail yeah. shot because it's a good holding shot and it, it's a leverage they can't like yeah you miss the gut cavity as well then um particularly on wahoo uh, yeah and you're pulling them up it's funny because that those fish have like a really big air bladder so when you start to pull them up quick, one they have that initial run. Yeah, they they just they just rise up, don't they? And then they just kind of go for it. Like once they start yeah. going, just pull them up. For Where sure. like tuna, it's scary. Like we've gotten bluefin tuna. We get bluefin tuna here, and that thing is so dangerous because even if you pull it up and that and it decides to turn its motor on, it's going. Yeah, Where that's dog, the end of it, yeah. Yeah, it seems like with a dog tooth, there's a big fight and then it's over. Um, yeah, if you, if if you can get it uh, in one piece and on the way up, um, yeah, the dog tooth. Once it gets to the surface, it's pretty it's pretty cactus. But um, yeah, that's. Oh, sorry, I forgot that cactus isn't a word that's used anywhere else uh, outside of Australia to describe something that's broken or dead. Um, I realised this recently. I've spent a lot of time on British ships uh, with guys, so I've gotten pretty well versed on pushing in the queue and all this other stuff. Oh right, okay. Uh, pardon me, what? He's like, yeah, I'm pushing in the queue here. I'm like, oh, you want to get in the line? Okay, cool. You know. Yeah. Um, a question though, like you know, with you, um, 
the one thing that's unique, I think, about you and your situation is you've gotten into spearfishing, you're in Australia, you're diving, you're from there. Then you go to the UK and you're going to areas that are not um, really that common and you're showing, you know, like when you're going for halibut. Not that many people started doing that. It's kind of unique, rare footage. So I think that's what yeah. helped get a lot of attention. I, th I, th I think that's also due to the large viewership that is the united states and that's a very iconic fish for the states on on both you know alaska and and the west coast as well um is there, is there a halibut on the west coast there's a there's a, there's yeah. a and then you've got the pacific halibut as well yeah we have a, a smaller and then we have the big alaskan up in alaska we got the giant halibuts that get yeah relatively like you know two big barn door looking things like yeah um and i, I think that's probably why people really like that because typically those things from what i understand in alaska are very dirty water and very deep um uh, and whereas norway second time i went back i had to i could i could spot a halibut in 20 meters of water no problem if it was big enough <laughs> um and you always sort of think that, oh, it's a halibut, it's going to be very highly camouflaged, but I'll tell you what, as soon as you see a whopper, yeah, there's no mistaking it because you just, that massive triangular tail just sticks out like nothing else. Uh, so you, you're sort of straining your eyes going, oh, is that a halibut, is that a halibut? But as soon as you see one, you're like, yeah, okay, that's a halibut. So, yeah. I thought a little bit more, like you said, the triangle tail. Um... Uh, because cause it's such a, sh uh, it, it's such a sharp, tail uh shape uh on a halibut because it's it's a large triangle but it's very square cut so it's it really sticks out against the bottom uh, when you're looking at it versus when you look at say a place or like a, a round flounder type fish it's got a round tail and they tend to bury a little bit more i don't think the the big halibut they're too big to bury they don't they don't bury they don't they don't care they just sort of sit there and pretend to be a rock instead they're like oh, i'm not going to bury i just i've never seen a halibut buried ever um, with sand on, I've always they've always been sitting on the surface. Um, whereas place, um, sole, Dover sole, lemon sole, flounder, and turbot, and brill as well. I'm trying to get all the flatfish um, that we get over here. That they often very buried un under the sand. Maybe it's because they're smaller or something like that. But yeah. So how did you like? So maybe you can talk everyone through how, how I ended up there. Yeah, how did you do it? Like, how did you decide I'm gonna go here and dive? You know. For uh, well, basically, uh, in 2014, uh, my friend Bryson went to Peru for the World Spearfishing Championships. Got a bit hooned with some Finnish guys on the last night and flippant comment. Oh, if you're ever in Australia, look me up. My friend Bryson works, like, sort of at the time. I think he was doing six on, six off, like weeks on off, and he was in on the west coast of Australia, and he's like, oh my Finnish friends coming over to stay and uh, can you host him? Cause I'm away. I was like, uh, sure. So I was working six days a week at that time. So I hooked uh, he, him and his wife stayed at, at my place with my wife uh, and you know, we were out at work. So I didn't really get to spend too much time with him. Got him out for a dive. He shot a kingfish 10 kilos and he was frothing. He was over the moon, biggest fish he's ever shot. And um, prior to that, I said, Oh, do you, do you know anything about going to Norway for halibut? Cause I, I saw this photo of a guy with a halibut. Um, I think he's, I don't know what the guy's name, real name is, but I think it's Dan, but it's a very iconic Instagram photo that comes up. He's in the kelp rising up and the sun's beaming behind him. And he's got a big slip tip holding out. I think it's a big halibut and he's sort of like looking up to the surface. And he's, I, I looked at that photo one time, like years and years ago. I was like, 
I'm gonna go, I want to go shoot one of those things. And I said, oh, do you, do you know much about it? And he's like, oh yeah, we can go there um, uh, one time. Let's, let's do a trip. And then I said, oh yeah, I'm moving to the UK. He's like, oh yeah, we'll do a trip when you come over. I was like, okay. And then he's like, oh, I've been to, I've been to Norway once, um, diving, shot a few cod, didn't see any halibut, really bad visibility. I was like, brilliant. Um, I might do a little bit of research. And so I just sort of did a lot of research into time of year, where they live. I quickly worked out that the further north you go, the better chance you have of finding a big halibut. And yeah, it's just, just where they live, unfortunately. Like sort of, I've, I've never dived in Norway south of the Arctic Circle, so quite, quite far north. Um, and yeah, I just, I just picked a spot. I just watched a heap of videos online about the country that they just looking at the bottom structure, looked at a lot of topographical, topographic chart, topology. I get these two things confused, topology and topography. One of those basically looking at topography. Yeah. Just sort of looking at the structure, what, you know, what, what, what was diveable bearing in mind that the water was going to be pretty cold. So I'm not going to be bombing 30 meters at all. Um, and so my first trip I did, uh, I, I, I met an Australian guy over here. He's been over here for a bit over a decade that I met at a pairs comp because the, the British club paired us up because we were the Antibidian crew. So they, well, we became really good mates. And he said, oh, yeah, I'd like to go to Norway um, and, and shoot a halibut. And we just chatted on the phone. And I found a fishing lodge that had just opened up. They'd never seen a diver before there they've just been doing fishing it was an ex-commercial fishing sort of setup uh you know they've got like a proper kill room that's just stainless steel floor into a drain into the ocean sort of thing where they're just there to because um, they get the the cod they sell to i think the portuguese and the spanish they think they call it the bacalhau bacalhau uh, the salted codfish i don't know if you get that in the states but um very it's i'm not a big fan of it myself it's very salty but um anyway decided let's let's have a punt and go we looked and, and found some spots and my mate from australia bryson said oh i'm keen to go and his his missus came over as well she dives and yeah there was five of us suddenly in norway uh just they said here's the keys to the boat have fun there's the fuel station over there um bring just yeah dock the boat up when you're done at the end of it and leave the keys in it in six days time so, so- it was, uh, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of people I know are like big fans of charter trips and that sort of stuff. And a lot of people ask me, oh, who did you go out with? I was like, oh, I just went by myself. Oh, yeah, but, yeah, but who took you out? Who was you guys? I was like, hey, we just had a punt. Uh, we just sort of went for it. It was part of the adventure. And, and we, we fully expected to go up there and not actually, like, oh, we don't even know if we're going to see a fish or anything like that. We were like, oh, we'll get heaps of cod. But incidentally, the further north you go, the, the less sort of easy it is to find lots of cod where you're looking for halibut they're just in, in different things if you're looking for halibut you look for halibut if you want to go shoot cod and pollock and that sort of thing go shoot them but you really have to to focus and i think the first day um because we had about a four-hour drive from the airport we're like, oh, we'll stop at some bridges on the way we'll smash some cod maybe get a halibut at the fishing lodge and meet the other guys there we jumped in at these bridges there's like whirlpools behind them from the current and we didn't see a single fish worth shooting i saw like a an arctic minky mink like one of those little ottery fairy musk like uh, rodent type things like a kind of looks like a what are those things a ferret looks like a aquatic ferret looking thing that's all i saw i was like oh this is cool yeah yeah no fish and um we got back to the lodge and we were like hmm (laughs) um this might be a bit more difficult than we imagined but you know we got out there shot some shot some cod and stuff on the first day and yeah went um 
you just went looking for halibut where where we look for flatfish because we're quite familiar with finding flatfish in the uk so we thought halibut's just a really big one so we'll look in the same spots and thus began five days of endless searching for a halibut um, so you finally got one though i didn't get one that trip no 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 not on the first trip i i shot some so in place yeah, my friend Andrew on the on the second day that uh, the second day that we actually looked for them. So the second day we had the boat, the Australian guy. Um, he we just look. You've got miles of coastline. I think Norway's coastline is one of the largest in the world because of the amount of fjords and islands and all that sort of stuff. So its actual perimeter is insanely large. So you get out there and you you look at a map on Google Maps, like oh yeah, I'll just drift there. You get there and you're like, oh my goodness, this place is huge. How am I going to find anything here? And so we just dropped a drop. We had one person in the boat, and you just sort of drop people off in a line, and you know, 400 meters apart with a float uh, in pairs, and um, you know, you drift, and then once they get to the spot, the other person started, you know, leapfrog them over, and I was in the water. I shot like a place or something like that because I was like, oh, that's a really big, big place, like four kilos. These things are delicious. And then um, I think Bryson came and picked me up. He said, oh yeah, Andrew's got a nice halibut. I was like, oh, take me over. I want to want to go see it. And he's just 76 kilo whopper that he said oh i was just cruising along this ledge that we'd spotted the day before i said oh we should go back here it looks looks pretty good i've seen lots of flatties here so there might be a big halibut yeah he was just cruising down sitting mid-water saw a halibut swim under him shot at 76 kilos thanks for coming wow um, how was yeah. it uh fighting just real heavy fish huh oh that they oh on the surface it yeah they don't die um and i don't know if you've had shot many flatfish but locating the brain on a flatfish is slightly more t difficult uh than than a regular round type fish so trying to put a spear into that and obviously you want to be quite careful because 76 kilos of of angry halibut is not something you want to be sort of dealing with in a boat if you can avoid it um quite quite a dangerous sort of prospect to try and get that into a boat if it's too green so yeah, yeah i can't imagine that i mean i've i've uh at work one time i was diving and i stabbed a uh, halibut oh with the the, the halley hammers yeah, yeah, I was just at line up. Well, this was actually like years ago, and I just had a poker because we were looking for buried stuff, and mm -hmm. I just see this big set of eyes, you know. And this, I didn't know how big it was. I stabbed it, and it just seemed like the whole sea floor was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. yeah. And I quickly was like, it was only about, it was at thirty-three, like fifteen kilos. Yeah. Um, but I just had it, and I was trying to get back to the surface, like with this thing, and I realized, like, maybe I'd you know, bitten off more than I could chew, but, um, yeah, it, they, they fight a lot harder than a, a, a typical round fish because a round fish generally just has the tail to propel itself with. Whereas a halibut, uh, I don't know if you've seen one swim off, but they actually use the whole body. To yeah. Swim. Um, right. It's just uh, heavy. It's like trying to pull up a, yeah. a rug or something that wants to yeah. stay. It does. It doesn't take much to sort of kick your ass really. Um, so yeah. Um, and then I think the next day, uh Jose duffed one he, he basically you've probably seen the footage but basically he sat on top of it with his little pea shooter gun for about 30 seconds and then did a half-ass duck dive and shot it as it was taking off and you know just pricked it and the only thing that was sort of keeping it in the the fish was the fact that he sort of shot it so damn square that it sort of the pressure of it sitting in its skin was holding it in there. And I think it basically just, just pulled straight back out at the back of the tail, didn't really do anything to the fish. And he was like, oh yeah, I lost a fish. And we saw the footage and we're like, oh my goodness. <clears throat> I've been swimming for 16 hours in 12, in 11 degree water, 11 degree C, sorry, for uh, 
the uh, the state's viewers, and I was just like, oh my goodness. And then I think the next day, then he we didn't see anything, and then one of the other day, the second last day, he shot that one that we mentioned before, and then he lost it, and then my friend Bryson found it. He he saw he was on the bottom, and he because my gun has pink real line on it, and he's like saw the gun just bobbing. He's like, huh, that's odd, and looks down the real line like, oh big halibut attached to that boom and then shot it and a couple spears later got that in the boat and then we're like oh crap we've done this done this section so we moved somewhere else and within i don't know like five minutes of being in the water yozo's like oh i shot another halibut but it's a really bad shot and i was like are you freaking kidding me like i just have i haven't even seen one and he's just shot another he's like oh it's a bad shot and i went i went down and it was just it was a bad shot um so i went down and, and finished it off for him it was in about sort of 15 meters but when you're sort of fighting against current trying not to pull a spear out to get down there f- with a big heavy lead belt and a lot of a thick wetsuit 15 meters seems like uh the deepest dive you'll ever do um and yeah so we got we got that in the boat and it was great and nikki and i didn't have a fish yet and the, the next day um yeah we were unsuccessful in locating one so had to go home but um yeah i think it was really good i think it was actually really good for me not to succeed in that in, in hindsight at the time i was like oh, what this sucks but i think it was a really good lesson in obviously being humble and just knowing that enjoying the experience for what it is no matter what it was and i think that was a real turning point for me enjoying the diving over in europe because obviously australia's and, and the tropics you're spoiled for choice you can pick whatever you, you you can you can eat a different fish for dinner every day for a month sort of thing and you, and you, you wouldn't run out of fish to shoot but here, here in the UK, you know, there's maybe like five things you want to eat. And um, yeah, I, I just thought, you know what, I, it doesn't matter what happens. It was more, it started becoming a little bit more about the adventure and, and where I was and appreciating it because like Northern Norway is one of the most beautiful places I've, I've been in the world. Uh, I've, I've been to Norway uh, like six or seven or eight times or something like that. It's one of my most frequented countries I go to, um, only topped by... France, I think, just because I'll go skiing there a bit. But um, yeah, so yeah, it's. Uh, I think that was a big turning point for what I wanted to do with my videos as well and try and communicate to people that, uh, you know, when, when you go out, um, you should just enjoy it for what it is and not necessarily be so much about about the fish. Like the fish is the bonus um, because I, I remember, I don't know if you've ever been in this position, but maybe eight, eight seven or eight years ago when Facebook, you know, f- fishing on Facebook was kind of getting big. You know, everyone would go, go out on the weekend. You look at on Sunday night, you're like, oh, who's shot what and all this sort of stuff. And if I'd gone out on the weekend and I'm like, yeah, I had a great day and I was stoked with my catch and I'd see someone else's fish, I'd be like, oh, I had a crap day. You know, look what they got. Or where are they fishing and all this? And I talk about that a lot, actually. It's like a, yeah. a, a measuring contest, so to speak, right? Yeah, like- I, I, don't, I don't know who, who said it or, or where the quote's from, but uh, – I've just it's sort of stuck with me a little bit that the comparison is the thief of all joy and you know something that I might be really stoked on somebody else might not be but it doesn't doesn't matter as long as as long as I'm content with with what I'm doing and happy and I think that's a really it's a difficult place to be especially you know in the day age of social media where you sort of compare everything's a you know it's out for the open for people to compare and that sort of stuff you see you see other people shooting fish and that's also another reason why I sort of I thought, you know, this is really, it's, it sort of takes the fun out of it because all you're doing is trying to outdo someone else. 
not not actually having a, a great time yourself. So I thought to myself, well, if I can show people that going out and shooting a mullet at you know at a at a, at a pier in in the UK gives me just as much joy as shooting a Spanish mackerel somewhere, um, you know, I, I'd I'd trade that um, I would trade. 50 Spanish mackerel for the the feeling of shooting that mullet in a new country in waters I'd never dived before. It was such a euphoric feeling going on. You know, I've I've done something really cool here. I've gone way out of my comfort zone. You know, I've lost count of how many Spanish mackerel I've shot. I'm not trying to big note myself, but you know, like for some people, that's that's the only fish they want to shoot. But I'm like, cool, I've I've done that a lot. So I am, you know, something is that. It's like, it's like yellowtail here or kingfish here. It's not really that hard to hunt, you know? Yeah. Uh, and kind of going back to what you were saying, where it was like um, you could shoot fish all the time, every fish, a, a, you know, a different day in Australia. Yeah. Here, it's a little bit more similar to the UK in the sense that, like, I guess if you shifted your focus to smaller reef fish, uh, you could shoot fish pretty consistently here. And, and yeah. we do. However, if you're looking for certain species of fish, you could go out every day. And yeah. not see him, especially the sea bass, the white sea bass. Yeah. Um, and I remember there was like five years there where I didn't see a white wow. sea. Like, and I was calling my buddy. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. You know, goes <sighs> back to what you were saying. Like, he's like, look, you just don't see him when you start diving. You just don't see him. Your eyes not trained. Yeah. And you don't yeah. really understand yet. Um, and then um, you know, but then I had to learn. I got burnt out on diving actually, and then I got back into it. Um, like a couple years later, just cause I missed it, but it made me realize you just need to enjoy being, yeah. the, and I do. Um, but I got so jaded and so focused on like, this doesn't count unless I get a fish. Unless I get a white sea bass. Yeah. Yeah. And it changed my whole, um, now, uh, my friends laugh at me cause I usually am one and done. I have a, a fish I want to shoot and I'll go out yeah. and I shoot it and I'm done. You know, I, I also, um, uh, a lot recently have, have taken a lot of uh, pleasure in just taking your fish and being able to cook for other people and sort of bringing that experience a little bit, you know, a, a bit home and sharing it with other people because it, it's it's sort of hard to communicate what, what you do and the feeling you get. But when I, I, I particularly enjoy hosting people and having people around, uh, friends, family, et cetera, and, and being able to cook something that I've taken myself is is quite special. And I, and it doesn't really matter. People don't care if I shot a, a bass, a, a, you know, a European bass, which is sort of the premier fish here, or if I shot a place that sits there and you can basically, I've, I've picked these things up before sort of thing. You know, you don't even need to shoot them. No one cares how difficult it was, what your hunt was like. They care yeah, about, right. you, know, you, you know, you bringing something to the table and, and sharing the experience with them. So that, that was also another thing that got me was because, you know, people don't understand um, what you actually do uh, or what I, what I was doing as a hobby. And so making videos was another way of showing, sharing the experience. And like what, what you were saying about the no fish thing, I, um, I oddly had a, a, a work trip to the northern end of Sweden uh, at the top of the Baltic Gulf there for, for a client I had to go film for. And it was cheaper to fly to Finland than drive three hours. I was like, oh, great. Um, and, and my work's really great with, you know, me, if I'm on a shoot somewhere near the beach, they'll be like, oh, you know, if you want to you know stay and go for a dive, take your dive gear. Because like, I, I do a lot of, I used to do a lot of work in Denmark and I'd take my dive gear quite regularly and go diving in Denmark after work, which was great. 
but my friend Jose lives in Finland and I knew he was going to be about three hours from this town. And I said, oh, hey, I've got this day off till about, you know, four in the afternoon. Let's, let's go diving in the Baltic. And then he said, oh, the conditions aren't so great. Let's go to this lake. So we drove two hours towards Russia. Um, and he, I, I saw that. Where, I was like, dude, where are you taking me? And I like, I didn't see a single fish the whole thing. We, you know, I, it was sleeting snow sort of stuff when we're getting in our wetsuits. And I thought I, because I, 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 I put a lot of effort into like making the video look nice. And I, I'm denied about putting it out there because I thought, you know, I've made this, gone to this effort. But I thought, you know what? This, this is kind of, for me, as, as real as it gets. You know, you can plan a trip. You can go somewhere. You can make it all happen. All the stars of a line. And the fish just aren't. You don't see a fish. Like, oh. But that doesn't mean, like, it's not a fun trip or successful or, or anything. Like, it's, it's an amazing memory for me driving down those crazy country back roads of Finland with the orange trees all around you. Because I, I don't get a lot of orange trees where I'm from in Australia. You're probably used to all the um, deciduous trees where you're from. I but, mean, well... The West Coast doesn't. I mean, yeah, we have them. You got it. Yeah, know, right in San Diego, but yeah. Yeah, you see autumnal colors quite often, but whenever I see them here, I'm just like, oh my goodness, this is so beautiful. And to just dive in this pristine lake, and yeah, it was it was cool. And I think a lot of people resonated with the fact that you go diving, it doesn't always work out that you get a fish, but that doesn't make it any any less fun. So, yeah. well, what's funny about that video, like you're talking about, it is um, I remember that video. Like I watched it. I remember it. I don't remember. I remember. Yeah. You look down. I remember like a snippet of it was all murky and there's some sticks and stuff. Yeah. Uh, but I remember because I think, like you said, everybody can relate to it uh, for the most part of, especially some of the places I had to dive for work, um, being cold, getting out. Like I remember in your video it was uh, snowing and yeah. I was like, wow, that's a trip, you know, because those, those trips sometimes, well, it's all about the journey. Definitely. But it's high risk, high reward. But yeah, it's a moment like that diving has kind of pulled you all together. Like, so I actually kind of talked about that. I think on the Facebook on, on the Facebook group. Yeah. Um, what does everybody want to see more? And they're like the journey, you know, the journey. And um, so I'm gonna try to do that this year because I mean, you've inspired me. You're you've gotten into the whole video thing, right? As far as like your job and you learn. You said you were self kind of self-taught for the most part in the beginning yeah um yeah do you have any recommendations like gear recommendations i know on your videos you have the links and things like that the easiest thing obviously is just to start on a gopro um but the biggest thing i think that separates a lot of videos that are very watchable versus something that's okay is the sound quality and that's just something that i've tried to become a bit of a stickler for trying to get good sound sound quality because sometimes you you hear people talking through a gopro and they're talking softly because they're not really used to talking on a camera and you know they don't look you know you, you can't hear you don't really know what's going on it's not not particularly engaging um if you are going to talk to a camera you you really got to look down look down the barrel because that's that's where the contact it, the connection is particularly you know when you have a conversation with another person you, you talk through the eyes you, you you maintain eye contact you you know somebody's looking at you because you see their eyes looking at you you, you, you if you're in a crowd and and nobody's looking at you or looking at your eyes you don't notice them because you know that that's where the connection is made between between people and and many other animals as well you'd probably notice if you look straight in the eyes of a fish uh, that they're onto you. They're like, oh, oh, this person's looking at me. So, you know, you see some people putting their hand over their mask and looking through the slit of their fingers. 
right before they pull the trigger sort of thing or mirrored mirrored lenses on your on your mask and that sort of thing uh poker players poker players they uh they wear glasses so you can't see because that's where the the connection is between two people is through the eyes mostly so i yeah i i would say if you're gonna yeah if you're gonna talk to a camera talk to the camera as it's a person on FaceTime or something like that. And um, yeah, the audio is, is probably the big thing. So particularly with GoPros, yeah, you have to take them out of the housing to get any decent audio, which is unfortunate because then they're only waterproof to 10 meters. But um, yeah, I would say if you, if you want to talk to camera, make sure the audio sounds good. Go somewhere, um, go somewhere quiet. Don't do it on, on the beach where there's waves crashing and that sort of stuff. So that, that's probably my, my biggest thing that um, frustrates me. In, in my professional life as well is, is bad audio. I'm like, oh no, I can't stand listening to this. So uh, you have any tips on how to clean up like audio or any software? Um, uh, there is like some sound removal stuff, but then again, it always destroys part of the, the sound of your voice, like the, the warmness of your voice as well. And I think the biggest thing is getting as close as you can to a microphone. The further you are away from the microphone, attenuation, and it just doesn't, it doesn't sound as good. So if I, I can get a, 3000 pound microphone at work and stick it six foot away from you. And it's going to sound like crap. If I stick it, if I stick it, you know, six inches away from your mouth, it's going to sound absolutely unbelievable. So it's all about closeness for the, for the audio anyway. Um, yeah. And, and then the other thing is, I guess when you come to editing your videos is having the, the mix right between if you've got, um, you know, a music track behind, you know, you want to dip that, track down when you're talking so you're not sort of fighting to hear I, f I find i see that quite often that somebody's talking and they've got music and i'm like i just can't concentrate on what you're what you're saying because you're competing with something else so that's that's one thing i'd say um but yeah gopro is a great place to start it's waterproof you can take it underwater um you can take a nice still still image on it as well as um as video um yeah it's a, it's a good place to start really and you probably won't cry if you drop it. <laughs> well, I gotta give a little uh, uh, plug to uh, the company I work with. Uh, it's a Caso, and they're like, I gotta say, like for the most part, it's it's fairly comparable to a GoPro, yeah. but they're like a hundred bucks. And I've had a uh, a fish, you know, swatted off my head. I lost it, and uh, I was more it, upset by the footage, losing the footage. Oh. You know, oh, I've 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 had shocking moments with that. Oh. But um, the point is, like, I, you know, I, it was only a hundred bucks, so I was able to get it, no, no problem. But I, then yeah. I think that difference between buying a GoPro and buying the camera, um, and I could buy a new set of fins or go on another trip or something. Like, I'm always trying to figure yeah. out. Yeah, it, it is, it is a hard uh, thing to justify. And I think some people are, you know, they're just passionate about making videos and recording their memories as well. And some people just aren't into it at all. They're, they're not interested. They're like, oh yeah, cool. I like watching videos, but I don't, I don't have a desire to do it myself. And I think you, you mentioned in, in some earlier questions is for people starting out a channel, um, I would say that you, you don't have to have all the gear. You know, I've, I've built up camera gear over, you know, five years of just buying bits and pieces, trial and error and that sort of stuff to where I am now where I can quite, I'm, I'm happy with the stuff I make now. It's, it could be better. It, it always could be better. But yeah, I think the important thing with the YouTube channel is, I, I get this question quite a lot. Like, oh, how do I start a YouTube channel? It's like, that's exactly it. Just, you just have to start um, because the reality is the first video you make is going to be crap. The 10th video you make 
might be slightly less crap. Like I, I look at back at some of my earlier videos, even maybe two years ago, where I'm in in this exact room, and I just got like my colors look terrible, my lighting's horrid. I've I just I, I can't speak properly on camera as well. Um, that's that's a lot interesting about. skill though too is actually getting used to talking to a camera and being yourself in so, front of a camera because it yeah. feels awkward i think i think the most awkward part is when you come back to edit your own voice and then realize you say words very stupidly for instance when someone's in a rush uh, okay for instance okay cool what is this a bottle of water w-a-d-e-r like there's a t in there why why do we most people say water or like i jumped in the water like it actually sounds really stupid when you go back to edit it it's water um yeah it's uh you become really hyper aware of what your language use is like as well how much you have pauses for instance how you use punctuation grammar how you draw people in with your inflection if you there's that age-old sort of australian questioning inflection where if I say the sky's blue, where I put an inflection on the end, where it means it sounds like a question. Or if I say the sky is blue, that's a statement. So th yeah, there's heaps of stuff you can sort of dig into about how to how to speak to a camera or, or just speaking in general. And I've, I've watched a few, I have to admit, I've definitely watched a few videos on speech and how you communicate using your hands, um, your, your speech, how to be engaging and not, and not be boring, how to change your voice to not be boring as well. I'd like to think I'm less boring than I was 24 months ago. Um, yeah, that, that's probably the hardest thing for people. There's the other side of it too, where if you watch yourself and you're like, like for me, I know that I, I didn't notice that, but my lip or whatever kind of sags over here versus over here. <laughs> it's funny because I'm like, oh, that's really annoying me. What? Yeah. What <laughs> there's a certain it's like the best thing you can do for a self evaluation is film yourself. Yeah, and then you're gonna have to get real comfortable with your imperfections and just go with it because or yeah. or you know try to watch what you say. Um, and I always Def encourage definitely. people to like get those comments back from people that say like you say this every you know whatever it is. Uh, it's like, and they're always like please don't be mad or something like, I don't care. I appreciate the, the, you know, the input. Cause this is for you guys. Like, yeah, yeah, definitely. I, when I listen to podcasts as well, I often hear the language that people use and I find people from the West coast of America use the phrase, you know, a lot as, as almost it's a, it's, it's a form of punctuation instead of pausing you just you slip that in there as a way of ending a sentence and going on to a, another sort of thing. It's extremely interesting once you sort of start filming yourself and gets quite scary because you realize, why do I say things that I do? Yeah, they uh, <laughs> told me that at work because uh, I started instructing people and they're like, you say you know. Uh, that's lot. hilarious. I had no idea. That's you don't have any idea until you do it. Yeah, but yeah. Um, so... <laughs> kind of wrap things up what's next for you like what you have any trips <sighs> planned or like any going back to tonga or any other islands some uh so, um, or anywhere or? Uh, li living in the uk it's quite difficult and expensive to get to that part of the world uh, the, the south pacific areas where it's you know dog tooth town and all that sort of stuff uh, there's there's africa i haven't really gone too much there because i'm sort of focusing on europe because it's just a lot cheaper to get to for me at the moment 
I, I did actually have um, the privilege of going to Timor-Leste last Christmas, just before Christmas, uh, for a month for a documentary for work. And it was about whales and cetaceans and that sort of stuff. And so I was getting to dive every day for a month, which was amazing, and fly a drone off a boat chasing big fat whales around. And hopefully there might be another trip on the cards for that. So if I do go back there, I might try and take a spear gun with me because there was a lot of fish there. Um, Where was that, you said? Timor-Leste. So if you go to West Papua and then you find Timor and like if you go Bali, Komodo, Timor, it's, it's, it used to be called East Timor, but the technical name, the official name now is uh, Timor-Leste which is means Timor Timor of the East it's the, the youngest the youngest nation in Indonesia at the moment uh, ex portuguese colony so hopefully i might go back there on a on a work trip which would be would be fun but i think locally um, going back to norway in a couple months in the springtime something that i don't have a lot of confidence in where i because I, 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 i've i've been twice for halibut i've been successful the second trip and we've always done those in the, the autumn because the reason the reasoning is most people would say, I'm going to go in the middle of summer to the north of Norway because it's going to be the most warm, which is true. But because it's 24-7 daylight north of the Arctic Circle, the marine plants go absolutely insane. And so you get really bad blooms and, and algae and that sort of stuff in the water from it's, it's it's basically you've got a hydroponic setup for for your um for your kelp and other marine marine plants there so the visibility can be really poor on the surface so you, normally we go in the spring uh i've been in september visibility was okay being in october it cools down a bit and the visibility is much better but this time we're not going for halibut we're going for these migratory atlantic cod that come out from the depths of the Atlantic in springtime to, to spawn. And that's where they always, that's the time of the year that they catch the world record cod. So I think they've caught them to the place where we're going, caught them 50 kilograms, which okay. is a massive Atlantic cod. There's one spot in Norway that a lot of divers go called um, Saltstraman, which is the world's strongest tidal current. People, you can, sh any sort of any day of the week, you can go there and find a 15, 20 kilo cod. They're quite common. If you go there, you're going to get a big cod, but they're not the, the true gargantuan fish that that do appear out in other parts of the world so expected water temperature is four degrees celsius which wow. is it's not very, it's not very warm at all i'm going to say less than tropical but it should make for a really nice video because hopefully it's still covered in snow everywhere there and so you have to go in the early spring because if you go late spring the snow melts and then the visibility goes so yeah it's a all those things you have to think of when you go somewhere to dive. Uh, going to Italy next weekend to visit my friend Giuliano and he's going to take me diving out of Rome. My wife was sick of me whinging about not going diving. So for Christmas, she got me a dive trip anywhere. So I think I got return flights to Rome for 60 quid with luggage. So going to go there and hopefully try and shoot anything as as if you've if you've dived in the Mediterranean, you know it's a very humbling experience. So I've heard you're diving to yeah, thirty meters to shoot a fish that's twelve inches long or something like that. Yeah. In in the wintertime though, they've assured me that it's less than six meters for sea bass and, and gilthead brim and that sort of stuff. So hopefully I can shoot something or at least film somebody shoot something else. So that'd be cool. Um my wife's thirtieth birthday in the in the summer as well. So we we're gonna be in Italy somewhere for a week, so I might do some more diving then. 
There's the World Championship in Sardinia in September as well. So I don't know if I'll be on the British team for that. Don't know if I'd be capable of diving the depths there to actually shoot anything, but I'd, I'd be pretty keen to go and go and film it. So with all this travel, though, do you have like, do you, what do you, uh, how do you bring your spear guns or do you have any issues with that? Cause I know certain uh, countries like, I know Europe's pretty good, but, um, do you yeah, have like, a certain bag you like to bring your stuff with? Um, or? I brought my, I borrow my brother-in-law's sport tube that he uses for his skis. Cause generally when I'm diving, it's the summer and he's not skiing. So it's like one of those hard cases sort of things. That's what I have as well. Yeah. Yeah. The the only problem that I've found with it is it weighs four and a half kilos off the bat. So most European airlines only give you 20 kilos. And if it's a good one, they might give you 23. So I take that. I can fit a couple of guns in there, fins. And most of the time with weights, I carry them on. Just just my dive weights. I I leave them on the belt. I take my knife off my belt and leave that in there. And I generally put my mask in my carry-on bag as well because it's quite loose. A lot of the regulations about weight restrictions for carry-on baggage in Europe, the general rule is you must be able to lift it unassisted into the overhead locker. Um, So I've become become nearly unstuck once. I think it was last September I was going to Denmark for Euro-Africa Championships and I had... Six dive weights in this, so six kilos of weight. I had two camera bodies, four lenses, a aluminium underwater housing for one of those for a DSLR type thing. I had a, a glass dome port in aluminium housing, all in my carry-on like wheelie bag. And yeah, they pulled like the red alert on on at the when it goes through the scan, and I like I had my laptop. I pulled my laptop out, sir. Uh, but they said, oh, we need the manager to see this. They wouldn't even let it go through down to open it up without seeing something, someone's pressed the red alert, this is definitely an IED or something like that. And uh, IAD or whatever it is. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm like, oh, hey, that, uh, that, that's my bag up there. They're like, what's in it? I was like, some dive stuff. They're like, huh. They're like, unpack the whole thing. But I got to carry it on. Otherwise, it, I think the bag weighed like 16 kilos. <laughs> um, yeah, so I probably stretched it. Would it fit in the overhead compartment or... Yeah, it was a standard size just because it had heavy, heavy crap in it, like lens, lenses and lead weights and that sort of stuff. So I don't encounter too many troubles um, flying with, with dive gear. I just say it's fishing equipment. And um, yeah, I've actually recently got uh, off my mate Tim. He's let me borrow his Rife Euro Traveler gun, uh, which breaks down into it. I don't know if you've seen those, the spear unscrews and stuff. Yeah. Um, I used that in Scotland last year. And Did you so, like it? It's quite heavy because it's got the steel rods in the middle of it. Um, but I'm also used to shooting a carbon fiber pea shooter here in the UK. I use a an 80 or an 85 or something like that. That's carbon fiber, six and a half mil spear and a single rubber. You know, you can pull the trigger and yeah. Like it's really easy to move around. You don't even notice you're shooting it. But when you get a rife euro, you know, they're, they're quite a beefy gun. So, um, but. Well, it's funny because a rife euro, like for us West Coast divers, like we carry the gigantic, like. Uh, yeah, what's what's with that? Well, why do you need such firepower? Is that just the the America? Yeah. Oh, it's like God bless America. Um, this is my right to have a big ass gun. Yeah, um, yeah. I've I've seen some of the things that people use for white sea bass. Like these massive four rubber things, slip tips, mid handles, like seventy two inch. I'm like, that thing is huge. You could kill a whale with that, and. I'll probably just go. My wife said when I showed her, like I made one of those monstrosities, and uh, she's yeah. like, "What are you gonna? Are you gonna shoot a whale?" I'm like, "Well, you know, yeah, if it lines up right, I guess. I don't know. No, 
Wales, deli- Wales delicious actually. Yeah, um, I'm sure you've had up in Norway, right? Or- yeah, I've I've tried it up there. Um, yeah, tastes tastes quite good. It's it's absolutely a, a cultural thing because for many for, for for many people in the world, dog is you know it's not a problem to eat a dog. And apart from the you know culture of Western societies where they're domesticated animals, yeah, you know, like it's it's a food source. I, uh, or people eat all sorts of weird stuff, and and that's and that's okay. Like people eat people eat weird cuts of pork and that sort of stuff in Germany and all that um, that most people wouldn't touch or yeah like, like you, you think about the, the amount of cheese that comes out of France or the stinky stuff that people you know most people wouldn't touch it but that's this is what they live on and that's uh, what they there's like. countries I've been to where dogs you know and, and I have two dogs right here and I you know I love dogs but um, yeah. they're not domesticated normal dogs they're like in the Middle yeah. East these places like they're packs of dogs that are like carnivorous yeah. like you know like yeah. non-domesticated dogs it's wild dogs yeah uh, for sure so yeah but um not to get off topic or anything but it's just a good idea to remember that when you travel you know like i know you do and um people just need to think about that like before you condemn someone you know oh 100 percent. yeah it, italy when i go there when it, when i got there last year they said oh yeah we're um or the year before, sorry, rather. Like, oh, yeah, we're going for a barracuda hunt today. I was like, great, barracuda. Uh, not something I would ever consider even shooting in Australia because it's got such a stigma about it, about the eating qualities. But I shot one. We ate it in a pasta, a bucatini. It was absolutely sensational. And I was like, huh. And that, that kind of changed my mentality a little bit on what's an acceptable fish to eat as well. There's a lot of people over here in the UK, there's a thing called a balanrass. And they're... They're dumb as what comes out of their backside. They're not a smart fish. And there's heaps of them. They're not commercially fished. They're in the shallows and they grow you know, a couple of kilos is a, is a whopper and they're easy to shoot. And everyone said, oh, they're inedible. Only the French will eat those. La, 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 la. And I was like, oh, huh. the French have some really nice food that I actually really enjoy. I'm going to try one. I cut it up, took the sides off it, ate it. And I was like, it's probably one of the best fish I've eaten in the UK. And I was just thinking, how crazy is this? That there's this culture of this is a terrible fish, and it's inedible. So yeah, I think as long as I think everyone should try fish, and I think um, traveling to new places and seeing what other people eat, it's opened my eyes a little bit about my fish snobbery as as such, um, about what what is acceptable and what's not acceptable to eat. But I think if you're a good cook, you can make pretty much most fish taste alright. Some fish are probably not ideal but you know you can still eat them and uh, it, it's it's better in in my opinion to spread your uh your hunting over multiple species than it is just hammering the same thing over and over again agreed you, agreed yeah uh, so. yeah it keeps you in the water every season like no matter what you're always i mean you always can come home with something and, yeah and definitely cook it right you know because every fish you can kind of cook a little differently too but yeah, you just got to experiment and be prepared that you might not have a great meal and you have to might you might have to order a takeout curry one night if you really balls it up. Well, it's interesting cuz I feel like you you learn a lot of that stuff when you go to these countries where people are yeah. truly still dependent on the fish. Yeah. So they don't really care about stigmas or not, they need to eat. Yeah, and they make they make it taste good. Yeah, and I've seen that with a lot of smaller like little tropical islands I've been to where some guys just hanging yeah. out. It's like, "Yo, oh, yeah, we eat that." I'm like, "You do?" Okay. Yeah, I saw, I saw some of that going in Timor as well, like little 
giant trevally and that sort of stuff little squirrel fish i was like oh my goodness what am i eating here and then i'm at this little dinky restaurant if you could call it a restaurant and i was like oh this tastes actually really really nice huh maybe i'm a maybe i'm sort of not as smart as i think i am <laughs> yeah the squirrel fish is pretty good actually yeah yeah it's um yeah i i quite like going to those new places seeing how other people do things and and um I think it always makes you a better person and and a better diver uh, to go somewhere and get humbled by a local and then learn from it. Um, as frustrating as it as it might be in the moment, you can always look back and learn something from it. So that's what I enjoy doing. And hopefully this year's full of a bit more of that. And I can hopefully try and share some of those experiences uh, with, with the rest of the world, and they can maybe learn something learn something from it as well. Yeah, that. I'm looking forward to seeing the videos. Yeah, the travels. Um, we'll see. I really appreciate you taking the time with the uh, time difference and everything and talking. That's uh, not a problem. Not a problem at all. I love it. And if you ever get a chance to come out to San Diego, we'll put you on some tuna, hopefully. Or uh, I'd love to do that. Or the white sea bass. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to. It'd be awesome. Although, although I might have to go out with someone else other than you for a white sea bass if I want to see one, given your five-year drought. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was years ago. But yeah. Oh, yeah. So when you first start diving, it's – yeah, they don't call them white ghosts for nothing. Like, yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh, well, um, hey, it's been, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks, thanks for uh, being on the show. I appreciate it. Cheers. Thanks, Dan. That concludes our show for today. If you like what you heard, please leave a comment. And if you want more of it, check it out on our website at www.spearfactor.com. All right, thanks for listening. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Tune in to West Marine's Life on the Water, presented by Costa Custom Boats, every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. You'd think, with four of us spread out on a tiny island, that the task of tagging a whitetail would not be a big thing. But, as I've learned, no matter where I've been, whitetails can be damn tricky. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.